you look at MLS, the top 50 scores, top 50 I'm talking about in the league, no more than five were born in the U.S. So that shows we're not really producing uh, goal scores. That was longtime professional soccer writer Frank DeLapa, and he's the guest on today's episode of New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Welcome to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast, the podcast for serious soccer players and their supporters to help further their development and navigate their way throughout their soccer careers. And now, here's your host, Matt Langoni. Welcome to another episode of New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Today I'll be joined by longtime professional soccer writer and New England Soccer Journal contributor Frank DeLapa. Frank, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, great to be with you, Matt. Yep, I figure uh, this is a good time to start discussing the World Cup since it's here, which is kind of crazy. Holiday season World Cup, it just, it feels a little awkward to me to be talking about a World Cup with Thanksgiving and Christmas right around the corner. What's that like for you? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's all, a lot of things are wrong about this World Cup. Well, the timing is, is, is really, it's the main one and that, and it, it's going to impact, it's impacting on leagues, you know, and all sorts of players all over the country, uh, all over the world. You know, we can get into that, but uh, the timing of this is actually leading to players being exhausted coming into the, and fatigued coming into the World Cup, and they're going to come out of it, uh, as they always do, tired as well. Right, right, for sure. And uh, Frank, you've covered seven men's, men's World Cups. You've covered two Women's World's Cup, World Cups. Obviously, you're not going to be in Qatar for this one, but I imagine, like me, you'll be kind of... Uh, posting up on the couch for the next month and watching all these games unfold. Uh, you know, we got the, the USA-England game the day after Thanksgiving, which is going to be, I would think, a massive ratings bonanza for this country. What are you most looking forward to about this World Cup or what things are you really kind of paying attention to? Yeah, well, I guess just the on-field on competitiveness. You know, there's going to be some really interesting teams. As usual, you know, the, the drama and the excitement uh, really get into it in the second round. Uh, some pretty good teams are going to get knocked out in the first round, though, that'll be interesting to watch. Like, I would say, like, you'd want to watch a team like Japan and see what they can do. They really took apart the U.S. in a warm-up game not long ago. You know, they look like they're much better than the U.S., and they probably won't even advance. So it's, uh, you want to see teams like that and just, just see what they've got and see if they can maybe move on. What do you, in terms of the USA uh, this year, uh, I feel like with their program it's always been athletically they're gifted but I feel like they've always struggled to put the ball in the net and, and meeting kind of the skill level of maybe you know countries from around the world do you feel like we've caught up at all skill wise for this world cup do you feel like we're going to be able to have some individual strong individual performances put the put the ball in the net a little bit more frequently than we have in years past well that's what it comes down to Matt is is these individual players that can make plays and do something that, that makes a difference in the game. And that's, that's what, uh, what every country has. And the U.S. sort of has those guys now. As far as goal scorers, uh, the U.S. doesn't really have anything like what most countries do. If you look at MLS, the top 50 scores, top 50 I'm talking about in the league, no more than five were born in the U.S. So that shows we're not really producing uh, goal scorers. A few of those guys are going to Europe, and they're doing okay over there. But uh, I think the top scorer, you know, in, in, in Europe from the U.S. might have eight goals or something like that. It's not, not great. It's a really a tough skill to acquire or, or, or just uh, inherit or whatever that comes from. 
but the U.S. does have guys that can make the game, can break the game open, and that's guys like Christian Pulisic and Weston McKinney. They might be able to do something that, that can set them apart uh, and results in goals, it results in, in victories. As far as guys putting away a ton of goals, though, we don't really have that. Let's talk about the group. I mean, we know USA opens up against Wales, and then they have the, the big match against England that I think everyone's pointing at. And then the, the fourth team in, that, in Group B is Iran. What do you think about the drawing that the U.S. got? Uh, what's, what's the likelihood that they can play their way to the you know, top two of that, of that group? Yeah, it's a really good draw for the U.S. They're, they're actually favored. Listen, the U.S. is favored by the bookmakers to win two of those games. That's scary. <laughs> scary that they're favored, the yeah. And that's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it shows the group's not that strong. It shows the U.S. has progressed some. So, you know, then they're through to the second round, which is basically the goal of the U.S. They don't have to get to the quarterfinals or semifinals. That's a long ways off. But just to get through that first first round is really important. You know, it just it, it just makes everything better. So uh, let's see, it's hard to do. They can do it. Yeah, I, I believe the U.S. could do that. Um, first game against Wales is key. Wales knows that too. Whoever wins that will probably go through. They probably won't beat England, but you don't have to. You might have to just get a draw against Iran, and then if you, you're through. So uh, both teams will be going for it there. U.S. has, has a decent chance to do that. But you can't underestimate Wales, even though they haven't been in the World Cup since 1958, right? But they're still, they've got good players. I mean, aside from the obvious intrigue uh, of what makes that USA-England match so great and so exciting for us, I think there's also two fan bases for both countries that maybe often expect more out of the, out of the country than the country usually provides in these World Cups. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the English fans expect a, a great showing every time England's in a World Cup. And I even think the American fans, you mentioned getting out of the group would be a success. What do you think, in the eyes of most American soccer fans, what do you think their, their approach to this is and realistically what they think the team is capable of doing? Well, I think, the, you know, the hardcore fans we're talking about, right? I yeah. Think they, they kind of expect that you have to win every game. You, know, <laughs> when you go to those games and they're like really behind the team. Right. And, you know, U.S. expectations for any national team, you think they're going to be really good, but uh, easier said than done. So I think, you know, I think they've got to be realistic. Look at, I think what, what Greg Berhalter has done with this U.S. team is built it to, to, to be able to compete with Wales and England. He doesn't really care about anything else right now. If they can compete with those two teams, which would mean you could probably handle Iran as well, then you're good. There's several guys on this team that might not be on the team if they weren't playing those two teams. He wants this team to be physically capable of matching um, the intensity of Premier League opposition, which is England and Wales. Most of those players are there. It's a different kind of a mindset. It's kind of a more running. It's more physical, more contact. He wants guys that, that are able to, that are used to that and used to those players as well. They're, they're going to know how to play against those players. So that's the reason why a couple of guys maybe were left off the team. That's the reason why a couple of these guys are on the team. The obvious uh, New England angle here for the World Cup is Matt Turner, the goalkeeper for the for USA, obviously former Revolution keeper, played at Fairfield here in, here in New England. I know you know of a couple other kind of New England angles that may be a little bit more under the radar, but first, you know, talk about the Turner angle and, and what that kind of means to New England soccer fans watching him play in a World Cup. Yeah, it's unbelievable, really. 
Look at Matt Turner had uh, never played for the national team until last year. We're talking last year, and now he's starting in the World Cup and he's playing for Arsenal. So uh, this is it's a it's a fairy tale. It's an unbelievable story. You know, Matt was playing at Fairfield, like you said, and uh, you know I don't think anybody ever saw him down there. It wasn't his fault necessarily. Uh, a lot of scouts went to UConn, which wasn't that far away. You know. He probably flew into New York, LaGuardia, and drove on up there and went right by Fairfield on 95. <laughs> so, uh, you know, see Andre Blake and Kyle Laren, who's playing in the World Cup, guys like that. And uh, Matt just got overlooked. The, the revolution found him and turned him into, you know, sort of the player that he is now. A lot, a lot of us on Matt on his own. So I think Matt has a lot of intangibles, too. And that's what gets him to where, where he is now playing for Arsenal, even though he's just playing in your Europa League games, but that's a huge step. And uh, he'll be starting for the U.S. So, and I think that the coach of the U.S., Greg Veralter, thinks he can make a difference. You know, Matt, you've been around Matt a bit. What You mentioned the intangibles. What is it that makes him? Is it just one of those things where it's just work ethic with him and he just kept trying to improve and kept bettering himself as a keeper? But what's made him kind of have this, this rise in, in, in the soccer world? Yeah, I think it says that a lot of athleticism and just the, those intangibles, just being able to uh, position yourself, anticipate stuff. That stuff you can't even really teach so much. You just got to have it. And he just kind of got that along the way, you know, learned it the hard way. You know, he was playing in uh, uh, lower division D1, you know, and playing in, on loan from the revolution with the Richmond kickers and stuff like that. You know, getting on a plane on a Saturday morning, flying down to Richmond, playing a game in difficult conditions and coming back. Not a lot of, uh, you know, positive reinforcement coming out of that. You just got to do it. And he uh, learned. And also, um, I would say one of those intangibles that, that the Revolution guys that know him said, this guy, he does stuff like a baseball player sometimes. You know, that's something you can't teach him. Matt grew up playing baseball. And if you saw Arsenal playing, I think, against PSV in the Europa League, he made this one play. The ball was going out for a corner kick. He makes this like diving left-handed, you know, play like he gloved it, you know, gets up like a, a, a shortstop or something and fires it, you know, and gets the ball out to the, and uh, Arkham went down and scored real, it was a, kind of a real quick counterattack. I think it caught everybody flat-footed. It was the kind of thing, there's no stat for what he did, okay? There's no stats for a lot for what he does. And that was one. And I thought, um, by the way, Arsenal scored only one goal in 180 minutes in the field. And that was it. Right. And I credit a lot of that to Matt Turner. It wouldn't have happened without him. Right. Give us a couple other New England angles to pay attention to for the World Cup. I mean, obviously, we can always, we can always find some. And I know I was, I was chatting with you the other day through text, and yet you had a couple. So what are some other angles we have here? Yeah, kind of a lot of it ties together, too, even though it's a little uh, Kyle Lehrer right. went to UConn. It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon with the World Cup here. That's <laughs> like two degrees, though. It's amazing. <laughs> But Kyle Lehrer uh, went to UConn and was the number one draft choice in the MLS. First guy in the pick, pick and became, you know, this really good goal scorer. Now is Canada's leading goal scorer. Happens to be from Brampton, Ontario, which is where Tejon Buchanan is from, who played for the Revolution, and now they're both playing for Canada, right? Uh, so Tejon and, you know, Matt Turner played together for three years, that sort of thing. So let's tie that together with the the whole New England, a lot of that goes back to Revolution uh, general manager, who was Mike Burns. Mike Burns, as uh, college teammates, happened to be the coach at Fairfield and 
Matt Turner, and happened to be the coach at Syracuse. They sent Matt Turner and Tejan Buchanan along to the revolution or highly recommended them. It was those kind of connections that helped bring those guys here, right? And so Mike Burns is in New England as they get, right? So Mike played in the World Cup, you know, general manager for the revolution uh, for all those years. Might not get a lot of credit for all this, but he's part of it. Ray Reed at UConn, great recruiter, goes to Canada, finds players. He brought in uh, Andre Blake. He brought in Kyle Laren, you know, a bunch of guys up there. So I think uh, UConn had the number one draft choice in the MLS draft two or three or four years or the number two, right, in a row back just back in recent times. So, yeah, so New England had some pretty close connections there. Yeah. New England's soccer journal's The Goal will return after this. Hey, here's a great new idea in fundraising. Soccerhead's New England Comedy Fundraisers. This is better than a stand-up show. It's an event that your community will never forget. You'll get soccer-themed comedy with Paul Nardizzi, who has been on Conan O'Brien, and Nesson Comedy All-Stars, along with Dave Radigan from Sirius Radio Comedy, and Jim Roberti. There will also be giveaways and all sorts of extras. Want to make money for your soccer club and have fun while doing it? Email the guys at SoccerHeadsNewEngland at gmail.com. That's SoccerHeadsNewEngland at gmail.com. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England soccer? New England Soccer Journal and NESoccerJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England soccer scene. Have every issue of New England Soccer Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to NESoccerJournal.com to receive soccer coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, division one, two, and three colleges, showcases, rankings, and so much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to anysoccerjournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Soccer Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. Let's talk about the decision to have the World Cup in Qatar. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, you've covered seven World Cups. You you won't be at this one, and I think that speaks to the. I think there's going to be a limited media presence there. Frankly, as as we talked about off the air, I, I, not as many American sports writers making the trip. I assume that's probably the same case with with other countries around the world. And then we talked about the the timing here. I mean, the World Cup is always played in the summertime, and now it's being played in November and December, which is I mean, I'll enjoy still because it's a, it's a great product and it's entertaining, but it's, it feels weird. So what are your thoughts on just the, this timing and just the decision to have it in Qatar? 
Yeah, man, I'll be I'll be sitting right here in my front room <laughs> watching it and actually writing about it, which I never thought would happen. But it's it's uh, a lot of people are going to be doing that. Uh, so timing is is it's all wrong, really. And I think what we're we're seeing is that a lot of guys are going into this thing. Actually, there's a lot of injuries you're seeing. Uh, guys have played a lot of games because these leagues tried to compact their schedule, get as many in as they could before the World Cup. And then they're only getting a few days break before the World Cup, whereas in the past, if it was in the summer, you'd get 30 days at least between the end of the season and the World Cup. You'd have a long break, so guys would have time to recover. They're not getting that. You're seeing a lot of guys that are that are just breaking down. And so I think that's going to affect the World Cup. You might not notice it right away, but put in another thing that there's a lot of older guys in this World Cup, like Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, Oliver uh, Giroud, 36 years old, uh, Luka Modric, 37. There's a ton of those guys, and they're fine physically. So I think that's a tribute to, you know, I don't know, just modern medical whatever and good lifting. Because <laughs> guys are fine. You know, and they, they've got a ton of miles under their legs. So, but, but a lot of guys are going down. I just, I just think the timing is all right. And then guys are going to have to go back right back into league seasons a week or less after the World Cup ends. Right. I think something gets lost too. And it, we, we saw it during COVID when, when reporters were, were covering things from, from the couch and not being at events. It's much better to be at the venue watching these games unfold and, and the anecdotal stuff you get and just the, the atmospheric stuff you, you see that you don't see when you're on your couch. And that's just a miss too. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, logistically, this made it very difficult for a lot of writers to get and a lot of, you know, established soccer reporters to get over there and cover it, which I think is unfortunate too. Yeah. I'm looking at the, the cost on these. There's a, somebody sent over a thing just this morning, just to go to one game for a fan from New York is going to cost you $2,300. That's, that's just, and the ticket's only $68 when you want to get there. So, so yeah, I mean, that's just, I was thinking of that one, one like anecdotal thing. It's not just being at the stadium and, and being right there, I remember in 06 was a really good example when uh, Brazil, I was watching Brazil against France playing in Frankfurt and a ball went back into the French hand and Eric Abidal was chasing it down and Cafu from Brazil, I believe, was running towards it and, and he was right in front of us where we were. And I took, I looked at him in the eyes and I said, this guy doesn't want to chase 50 yards down there after a ball, he's not going to get maybe, and then have to run back another hundred yards. And I said, at that point, Brazil's done. Wow. They're not ready to run and try to keep up with a really good team. They, they were too old. And, you know, it was moments like that that you miss, right? you know, and we're not going to see that. You don't see that on TV. Right. So much of it gets lost. Yeah, You're right. There's so many just elements that you see when you're at the stadium that you don't see on, on TV. And I, I want to, pick your brain about some of you know, your favorite World Cup moments that you've been at, definitely. But before I get to that, I kind of want to see just in this year's tournament, who you like is the favorite? Who do you think is, is best built to win this whole thing? I'm picking France right now. I mean, they, those guys are loaded. I mean, it's unbelievable. Right. What they, look, at they got half their team is back from the one in 2018, which is also a curse, basically, by, by the way. It's hard, hard to win it two times in a row. But some of those guys are still playing, and they don't even need them back. So they've got tons of new guys, too. They're just loaded with guys. Um, but one of the guys just went down yesterday was a guy named Mustafa Nkunku, the, the leading scorer in the Bundesliga. 
got injured in practice yesterday. So that's kind of an example of the weird things that could happen. But they're still loaded with Kylian Mbappe. Right, and he's young too. I mean, it's his, this is his World Cup, it's, it seems like. Yeah, I'm picking him as the, the guy that's going to stand out. Right. Uh, 23 years old. You know, forget Messi and Ronaldo. It's his time now. But saying that, France has a way of sort of imploding, you know, some weird thing could happen and, you know, conflicts and, you know, one thing goes wrong and, you know, you lose, you're out and there's a lot of dissension. But they've got, look at Karim Benzema, just won the golden ball, the best player in Europe, who won how many times with Real Madrid, won the Champions League. He didn't play for France for the last six years. Now he's back, right? So they're, they're just loaded. So I'm picking them. After France, is it, uh, we know Brazil is going to be there. Argentina is going to be there if you look at, at the betting odds. But uh, any other teams maybe that are under the radar that you think could, could make some noise? Yeah, Denmark, I think. Denmark will never win it. Probably, you know, 100 years. But they could beat France. And they have beaten France twice this year. And I saw uh, those games on TV. They played France straight up. No problem. They could, they could beat France. They could beat them again. But they happen to be in the same group. So they'll probably both go through and won't meet again, you know, until the final, which I don't think Denmark could get there. But saying that, that's a team that you really got to watch. A really good surprise team, let's see, as far as the... The usual favorites. I think the surprise team is going to be Brazil. I don't think they're going to do as well as people think, really. They're loaded, of course, you know, the roster, all these great players and this and that. But I think there's a lot of weaknesses. Uh, starting in the de defense, if you look at Thiago Silva's 38, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of like getting up there. Danny Alves is like 39. Those guys are kind of getting up there in age. You can still play at that level. But, you know, are you going to play like seven great games in the World Cup when you're that old? I don't know, man. So it's, it's a lot to ask. Uh, there's some weaknesses in midfield, and um, they didn't bring along Roberto Firmino from Liverpool. That's a guy that could solve some problems there. I don't really know why they didn't do that. Seems like a no-brainer, right? You got, look, at this is the first year you got 26-man rosters. How does Roberto Firmino not make the team? Right. You know, and so I think, you know, they're, they're not as good as, as they think they are, Brazil, or as people think they are. You know, and that's another thing that Brazil gets a ton of support, a ton of, uh, you know, a lot of people saying you're going to win, you're going to win, you know, and that, that's really a trap to fall into, too, as far as overconfidence. Well, like, I mean, it's true in all sports. Good reputations are hard to live down. I mean, if you're considered a favorite, you're always considered, especially in soccer with Brazil. I mean, it's, it's every year they're going to be considered, you know, shortlist team to win, to win the whole thing. And I think that's, and, and like you said, I think they have what it takes this year. But, but I agree with you that France, all signs kind of point that it's their World Cup to lose. Yeah, I'm going to say that too. You know, but Argentina's really good too. Yeah. Argentina would probably, could beat Brazil. They beat Brazil in the Copa America final last time they played. So, you know, they're right there too. And, and the mentality of Argentina, you know, kind of a little different level. So yeah, those are, those are teams to look at. I think the European teams though, uh, really have an edge and they kind of almost gang up on like, look at Argentina. I'm picking them as, you know, they've got to be in the top two or three team. Second round, who do they get? France or Denmark, probably. Right. Both of those, you know, both, that's a tough ask right there. They might not get past the second round. For sure. Let me get your favorite World Cup host country of all time that, you know, World Cup you attended. What was your favorite country? Italy, Italian in 1990 was the best by far. Yeah. Uh, people talk it down is because there weren't that many goals scored, but it was the best by, uh, you know, look at, we had like literally like five-star chef restaurants <laughs> in, in the press center. You know, and, and the next year in the, in the U.S., I think we had like McDonald's. 
<laughs> but like you, you, you can't compare you can't compare Italy to any other place. Oh my god. Germany low was right there. Yeah, Germany was really, really good too because it just they've got everything, you know. Everything's totally efficient. You know, you got, you know, all the conveniences, hotels, restaurants, everything you need. Brains run, you know, beautifully. And then there's also like a uh, there's a million Italian expatriates living in, in Germany. They all have restaurants, right? So you're good. That was, that was right there. That was probably the second best one. A lot of, a lot of uh, 7 million Turks too, a lot of good Turkish restaurants. So Germany's just underestimated. You can't really beat that place. Well, Frank, as any sports writer knows, uh, a venue and a place is only as good as the food it serves us. So like, I mean, it better, I better be eating well if I'm covering something. So what, what were you in Italy? What, what, give me like an example of what, what would be like the media pregame meal for you guys there? Would it be pretty like, you know, just really good pasta? What were you guys eating? <laughs> yeah, let's see. Well, we, I, I remember one, they, they brought us all there, and, you know, just expected us to, I don't know what, just give a big review to the, to the uh, cuisine, but I can't even remember what they served. It was just so good. So <laughs> that was crazy. That was in Florence. And uh, I don't remember ever really eating there again Yeah, uh, because you get too busy. You know, yeah, yeah. Busy, you didn't. But there's tons of you just go across the street. There's you know at the right at the at the train station. Train stations aren't necessarily glamorous, but in Europe they're fine. Right, you know, go across the street. You've got a great, uh, great place to go to. So uh, yeah, that's the so beauty about Italy. Yeah, there's there's food yeah. everywhere. <laughs> I mean, they used in Napoli. They used the the Castel d'Ovo, which is like you know goes back to like centuries ago. Right, this old castle. It was the press center. Rome was like. You know, I can't remember what was that. That was right. Uh, that was, you know, you, you couldn't duplicate that anywhere else. Uh, they had like post-match stuff that we couldn't even get into. That was like, you know, for all the VIPs and whatever. So I don't know if I'm, I'm describing it well, but <laughs> just, just go there. If you go there now, it's, it's the same, you know, yeah. it's just a World Cup. What, what was your uh, least favorite host country? Okay. Hey, let's see. I don't think I really have one. Yeah. Uh, I thought the U.S. was too big. Yeah. You know. Um, you know, it was love to have it here, but it was just too spread out. You didn't have a feel for it most places. I think it'll be maybe better uh, the next time around, 2026, mm -hmm. when it comes back here and Mexico and Canada. But it's still way too spread out. You don't get a feel for, you know, these stadiums or a lot of them are outside the city. So I would say that was kind of a downer, you know. And it wasn't until like the, towards the end, where fans get concentrated, you know, the first round, you're all over the place. At the end, everybody's, there, you know, in Pasadena and LA, but, you know, so big that it's kind of spread. You could see where people were really, really celebrating. I think that'll be a little bit different this next time, but uh, you need to have centers. It needs to be part of the, just sort of part of the atmosphere, you know, and you have that everywhere you go. Even South Africa was like that. Everybody in South Africa, I thought, felt they understood what, what it was, what it was to have the whole world there, what that meant. They've had their eyes, you know, the world, the eyes of the world has been on South Africa a lot of times for negative reasons, for all this and that. And they really took to heart what, what this meant. It was all positive. And uh, I thought they did a great job. And you could, you could just, it was, it wasn't just South Africa. They, you know, if you went to places at night or after games, it wasn't South Africa playing, but another African team, they felt that, you know, you felt like the whole continent was involved in that one. So that was, that was really unique. Yeah, I'll be interested to see how different things look in 2026 with the World Cup being here as opposed to 94. Because, I mean, obviously, we, we know that attendance-wise, there's a major success in 94. But I agree, like, 
they probably missed the boat on on just the the experience and the and the cultural experience of of having it here. And because we like you said, it was so spread out. So I'll be interested, and it's going to be even more now with with three countries involved with Canada and Mexico. So I'll be interested to see logistically how they how they make that work. Uh, I'm also curious, what's the greatest individual World Cup game that you've you've covered? Let's see. I probably I'm just going to think that final in 2006 was uh, um, Italy and uh, France. Yeah. Let's see. I, I got to you got to really think this over. But that was like look at the the level of play in that game, and also just fact that those teams had played six games, gone through a whole European season. You know, it was it was pretty extraordinary too. It wasn't guys going a million miles an hour. You know, guys were banged up. Guys like Thierry Henry, who didn't get through that game. See, Frank Ribéry, you know, France's three best players didn't get through that game. They were banged up, but they were still, you know, they were really good. Uh, Zidane, I think, was injured. Uh, then he took himself out of the game when he, like, attacked Materazzi with a headbutt. <laughs> well, that, was a, that was a weird one, but Zidane's penalty kick in that game, I don't think I've ever seen anything like that, where he uh, chipped Buffon. But didn't just chip him. He put it off the underneath the crossbar. So it was spectacular. It was just guys, just guys with the, you know, just the, the whatever it takes, you know, to do crazy things like that. Fabio Cannavaro for Italy. I think Italy only gave up. That was the only goal they gave up the whole time, except against the U.S., which was an own goal. So if you appreciate defending and appreciate, like, just knowing how to win the World Cup, Seeing a team go seven games like that and not give up much. So that that's I guess that was the most memorable game that I can think of. And Italy not included in this World Cup, which is still bizarre. <laughs> I still can't believe Italy didn't qualify, but uh that's a that's a story for another day. Um yeah, yeah, no, I know it's it's I can't imagine the Italian soccer fans are gonna be <laughs> happy watching this World Cup. But Frank, this was this was great. I appreciate you coming on. I know we're all gonna be uh Sitting by the couch with the, you know, a lot of us with the Christmas tree in the background and all that, that stuff, enjoying the holiday season and, and watching the World Cup, which is going to be kind of kind of crazy and just bizarre, but it's going to be it's going to be fun. Yeah, it's going to be bizarre. Don't know. I think some weird things might happen because because of the timing. You know, a lot of that happened in O two was in Korea, Japan, because the timing uh, just in a different continent. So some unexpected things might happen. Absolutely. We'll be, we'll be looking forward to it. But uh Thanks again for coming on, Frank. Good, Matt. Thanks again to Frank DeLapa for joining the podcast. I'm Matt Langoni. Thanks for listening. New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast is produced by David Yaz and is a Siemens Media production. You've been listening to New England Soccer Journal's The Goal Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to our podcast. Or visit anysoccerjournal.com forward slash podcast Siemens Media inspiring informative insightful